Let's pray together. Father, as we turn to a portion of our time together this morning, a time that is marked by hearts in a posture of worship. Father, we have worshiped with purpose in song, in obedience to your word. We have worshiped through our prayers as we have together presented requests. We have acknowledged sin. We have proclaimed praise. God, now we turn to intentionally worship you together in your word as it will be proclaimed. And I pray, God, that you would honor your word among your people. Father, would you speak to us through this word that you inspired and in which you have revealed yourself all sufficiently that we might know you as you are rather than how we often conceive you to be. God, would you guard error from my lips? Would you guard distraction from our ears so that we might see you, Lord, as you are and be changed? Father, this is our prayer and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles... Would you open them with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 4, and find verse 18. Exodus chapter 4, verse 18. And as you're turning there, I'd like to ask you a question. What can you not tolerate? What can you not tolerate? And I mean that which you simply cannot stand. Not like you don't like it, like your husband's terrible tardiness or... So your dad's lame jokes or your wife's constant correction and how she always seems to be right. And I don't struggle with any of those things. I'm not quite sure why they came to mind. I'm simply referring to that with which you cannot live, that, that, that which causes you to feel almost physically ill. What in this day and age of total toleration can you not stomach? Now, <laughs> I would imagine given enough time that we all have answers to that question. Jeff was willing to share his with us. And were we to record our responses, we'd probably have a range of things. For some, the first thing that may have come to your mind is a foodstuff. Say, milk or citric acid, tomatoes, or something that were we to ingest it, because of the severity of our allergy, we might blow up, we might die even. Our allergy, our intolerance, right? For others, it might be an attitude such as racism, or a practice like abuse or trafficking that breaks our hearts and against which we've pledged to fight for as long as it takes until it's abolished. For others, it might be the moral decline that we see expressed across our nation. Whatever it is that came to your mind, this subject fires you up, doesn't it? I mean, you can't be in the room and hear it mentioned without getting excited and participating then in the conversation, whether you were invited to or not. I mean, we all have something. Some of us have some things that we simply cannot stand. Did you know there is something that God cannot tolerate? As, a, as much as our contemporary culture would like to deny this reality and argue that God accepts all, loves all, saves all, there is something that God, and that is specifically the God of the Bible who, based upon our examination to date, has disclosed the reality of His presence 
that he speaks, he makes promises, knows the future, is selective, all-powerful, patient, and trustworthy, there is something that the God of the Bible cannot tolerate. And I would like us to see that something together this morning as he reveals it to us in his word. And so with that said, let me invite you to follow along as I read our text for this morning. Exodus chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn. At a lodging place on the way, The Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say, and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Church, I believe that that which God cannot tolerate is revealed in verses 24 through 26. It's a section of Scripture that if you're anything like me, you've read before and you've thought, wow, that is really odd. What in the world is going on here? The inclusion of Zipporah's circumcision of her son and her subsequent behavior is unexpected to say the least. And it's holy confusion. So what is going on? And in order to understand this pericope, that is a section of Scripture that contains a single thought, I believe we need to appreciate the groundwork that is laid for us in the preceding verses, namely verses 18 through 23, which is why we began there. And it's where I believe we encounter the foundational truth that God has all authority. God has all authority. Verse 18 begins with Moses requesting his father-in-law Jethro's permission to go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Unsurprisingly, Jethro gives his son-in-law his blessing, at which point, verse 19, we encounter what scholars refer to as a resumption. And that is a, a statement or a sentence designed to remind us as the readers of all that has taken place to this point. Hence, verse 19 simply restates the motivation behind Moses' return request. But it also informs us of his, now that's Moses' divine reassurance. Moses has no fear in following the Lord's direction here because all of those who had previously sought his life are dead. And just in case any of us here this morning may have forgotten why this is significant, so hence 
the value of a resumption. Some 40 years prior, Moses had killed an Egyptian in defense of a fellow Hebrew. When Pharaoh got wind of his actions, Moses fled to Midian, where he's been living for the past almost half century. And so Moses, somewhat like Victor Hugo's character Jean Valjean, he is a man guilty of a crime. But unlike Valjean, whose arch rival, the police officer Javert, for those of you who are Les Mis fans, Javert gives the man no quarter, correct? Except here, all of Moses' enemies are dead. And thus he's free to return without fear. And so in verse 20 then, we read that Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and started back to Egypt. Now, at this point it would seem that the natural flow of the story would continue with the opening line of verse 21. And the reminder to us as readers of all that the Lord commanded Moses to say upon his arrival in Egypt. However, there's this seemingly innocuous sentence sandwiched here whose significance we cannot miss. And he took the staff of God in his hand. Church, I believe that this statement is of immense import for us this morning as it lays the foundation for the reality of God's ultimate authority. And I would distinguish authority from power here by the fact that authority reflects position, whereas power reflects ability. And so this statement reflects God's ultimate authority. And I believe that we'll see this then demonstrated in two ways. And so let me explain. In the cultures of the Old Testament, the staff was an essential personal possession. It was a means of protection, of identification, and even a symbol of one's authority. As one scholar explains, from the point of view of identifying oneself, a staff was in certain ways the equivalent in the ancient culture of what a passport or a wallet or a driver's license would be today. From the point of view of protection, it was the ancient equivalent of a sidearm. So you had to have a permit if you wanted to carry one of these things. And for the point of view of its function as a symbol of one's personal authority, a modern analogy might be one's per photo ID, or, or even in some cases, a, a parking pass. And so a staff wasn't simply a stick. It was a symbol, and its significance intimately tied to its owner. Thus, we read of the staff being the only item possessed by a person in the Scriptures, as described in Genesis 32.10, where Jacob describes his staff as the only item that he had with him when he crossed the Jordan. In other instances, we find it's the first thing that's named in a short list of possessions, such as Jesus' warning in, in Luke 9, verse 3, to take nothing for you with the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. The staff also reflected identity as revealed in the scandalous story of Judah and Tamar recorded in Genesis 38, where if, if you recall, Tamar demands Judah's staff as a pledge guaranteeing his payment in exchange for her services. The staff was an instrument of significance, great significance in the Old Testament, and one representative of authority, as specifically expressed in Genesis 49, where Jacob, as he's blessing his sons, declared the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. The staff was a symbol of authority. Now, do you notice there whose staff is described in verse 20? It's not Moses' staff, is it? Although that's how it is described in the verses that we studied previously. When God spoke to Moses, from the burning bush, providing him with three powerful demonstrations of his. That's God's authority. The staff was clearly Moses's, correct? However, here in verse 20 of chapter 4, 
we read he took the staff of God in his hands. And church, I, I believe that this association distinguishes God's authority as ultimate because this staff is the means by which God first demonstrates his authority, thus authenticating Moses' role as his servant before the elders who were told believed. The staff is also the first display of God's authority before Pharaoh, who, as we'll see in weeks to follow, rejects God. Yet the staff, Aaron's in this case, but it's still the staff, swallows those of Pharaoh's magicians, if you recall, demonstrating Yahweh's supremacy, his ultimate authority. And the staff also features prominently, as we'll see in weeks to come, in the initiation of various plagues, in the miracle at the Red Sea, and the miraculous provision of water for the people when they get to the wilderness near Sinai. And in each of these circumstances, the staff, God's staff, stands as a symbol of his ultimate authority. It's interesting to note that the only other instance in which Moses refers to this staff as God's staff is in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 9. We're facing the Amalekites near Rephidim. Moses directs Joshua to select some men to fight the Amalekites while he says, I'm going to go stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. And if you recall the story, as long as Moses held that staff up, the Israelites were what? They were winning, victorious. But as soon as his arms got tired and that staff dropped, they began to lose. And thus, Aaron and Hur sat Moses on a stone and they propped the man's arms up. Again, the picture we're given here, I believe, is of God's ultimate authority. And so at the conclusion of verse 20, here in our text, we see that God has endowed Moses with his authority, which is ultimate, and which I believe is then demonstrated by two things that the Lord then says, with the first being God's promise to harden Pharaoh's hearts. God's promise to harden Pharaoh's heart. Verse 21, the Lord says to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all of the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Yahweh informs Moses that as the God who possesses all authority, he will harden or make stubborn Pharaoh's heart. God has all authority such that he is able to direct the hearts of humans. Now, at first glance, this statement likely raises a couple concerns. First of all, if the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, why, why is Pharaoh still held responsible? And second, what part, if any, does Pharaoh play in the hardening of his heart? Is Pharaoh simply a robot? What, what role does Pharaoh's will play in this process. And church, this is, a, this is a difficult subject to address without raising the temperature in the room. Because as human beings, we can't stand the thought that we are never not in control of all our life circumstances, can we? We push back, some violently so, against the idea that someone else might invade our sovereignty. Because we have inalienable rights. We're autonomous. No one can tell us what to do. Don't tread on me, right? But then we read God's testimony of hardening Pharaoh's heart, an action clearly accomplished by God, according to our text here. And then Pharaoh later is also described as participating in this process. It's expressed in Exodus 8, verse 15, and then again in verse 32, and then again in chapter 9 and verse 34. And so while this may not set well with our personal sensibilities, it is the clear statement of Scripture. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh wasn't a robot because he actively participated in his heart's hardening. And therefore, because of his heart's hardness, Pharaoh was wholly accountable before God. 
And church, as we consider God's authority and how it pertains to our lives, I pray this morning that we might see this concept of individual freedom for the lie that it is. For not a one of us is free in the sense that this phrase is often employed to mean that we make what decisions we will apart from any influence from without, any direction from without. Such an understanding of human determination is completely false. Every decision we make, church, is dependent upon a host of external factors, all of which we weigh, do we not? As to their impact upon us and our well-being before we act. We're all slaves, in a sense. The only question is, to whom or to what are we enslaved? Here, God displayed His ultimate authority as He promised to harden Pharaoh's hearts. And friends, this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, if your heart has been regenerated or reborn as the scriptures describe it, then you've experienced this same authority only in reverse. As the God of the Bible, who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ Jesus, even when you were dead in your transgressions, meaning your heart was hardened by sin. This isn't from yourselves. You didn't do this. In other words, you didn't soften your heart. It's the gift of God. Not by work, so that no one can boast. Emmanuel, I believe that God demonstrated his ultimate authority as he promised to harden Pharaoh's heart. And second, as he pledged to take the life of Pharaoh's son. In verse 22 and 23, the Lord instructs Moses to say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. And that's a covenantal term. So God is informing Pharaoh here of his people's identity in light of his promise. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refused to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. <laughs> and we thought that God's hardening of hearts was tough to swallow. Where, how, how does this statement fit within our self-focused society? And I would imagine that our first reaction, many of us, would be to explain this away. But Hear the words that the Apostle Paul used to address the same emotions that many of us may be feeling right now. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if, Paul says, what if God choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath. That's us, prepared for destruction. What if, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, us whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Church, what I believe we see here in Exodus 4 is a demonstration of God's ultimate authority. He alone can change hearts. He alone has the power to take life or to give life. And he does so not whimsically, but intentionally. Not aimlessly, but purposefully. Not unjustly, but fairly. Not subjectively, but graciously. In his declaration regarding the death of Pharaoh's sons, I believe that God displays the significance of sin. And he demonstrates the concept of substitutionary death in the human sphere. And he does this concept, it's a concept that we find fully realized later when a virgin would give birth to a son, the Messiah, God the Son, Jesus, 
who though like us in every way was without sin, and yet he took our sin upon himself, was put to death on a cross by his Father, who is God. And that's an atoning sacrifice so that we might be set free to worship, just as Moses was called to speak to in front of Pharaoh. Called to worship. That is to live in a manner that brings glory to God and God only. God has all authority. And he demonstrates it over hearts and lives. And our aversion often to these biblical self-revelations arises from our pride. And that's an attitude born in the, in the Garden of Eden when God's creation listened to Satan's lie and we decided we don't need God. We can be God. We can determine right and wrong for ourselves. In this first act of arrogance, our whole perspective, people's perspectives change such that now when we hear statements like God has authority over all of life, we erupt insisted that can't be i have rights i deserve life it's not fair that god would take pharaoh's son's life what did he do to merit this right and it's here it's here that i begin i believe we begin to see what is at the heart of this issue which is located in the human heart and which god cannot tolerate so what is it that god can't stand god cannot tolerate sin and I believe he reveals this reality in the strange, albeit strange, but account of Zipporah's circumcising of her son. So let me explain. In verse 24 there, we read that at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Now, from our NIV translation, based upon the personal pronoun that's employed here, we, we naturally understand that him to reference Moses, right? However, in the original language of the Old Testament, that him here, verse 24, is linked grammatically to the son who is mentioned in verse 25. And therefore, Zipporah's action isn't performed to save Moses' life, but rather her son's. Why? Why would this woman do this? And I believe the answer is that Zipporah knew of God's covenantal distinctive. I mean, she's married to a Hebrew, right? They have sons, and so she knew she knew that the sign of God's promise to his people to be their God, to give them a land, and to make them as numerous as the dust, God made this covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, and he instituted the act of circumcision to mark all of those who were his. In Genesis 17, God informed Abraham, you are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of a covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not of your offspring. And the punishment we discover in Genesis 17 for failing to keep this covenant was exclusion from the people of God. Moses would have known this despite having been raised in Pharaoh's house. He would have been circumcised himself. And yet after 40 years of desert dwelling, he knowingly did not circumcise his son. Now, whether this was at the urging of his wife or not, we don't know, as she was from Midian. But what we do know is that as soon as the Lord met Moses on the way and was preparing to kill his son, Zipporah obviously knew the reason why, because she immediately performs this circumcision. And then she speaks words that most scholars believe were her best attempt to imitate the Hebrew ceremony in which this act was performed. Clearly, Zipporah knew that they had not fully complied with the Lord, as did Moses. But church, isn't this par for the course, at least to this point for Moses? I mean, this man is a reluctant rescuer. God reveals himself in a miraculous way, declares his name, promises his presence 
And all that Moses can muster is, who am I? I can't go. And then following three demonstrations of God's omnipotence, Moses again reneges, oh Lord, I've never been eloquent. Moses hems and haws, hesitating to do all that God demands. A response, I believe, we see reflected again here in his failure to fully comply with God's covenantal obligations. And church, I believe that we all share Moses' struggle to some degree or another. For don't we all tend to justify our actions, excuse our behavior, and overlook our shortcomings by comparing ourselves to others? Now, I tend to read this account and feel like Moses did a pretty good job. I mean, he's on his way to Egypt, right? I mean, sure, it took some coaxing, but he's obeying. Isn't that a good thing? Surely God can overlook something as insignificant as Gershom's circumcision. And what does that have to do with Moses anyways? I mean, is death warranted here, really? And the answer that God reveals, church, is absolutely death is deserved. Because failing to obey God's commands is sin. And God hates sin. Sin is the antithesis of all that God is, and therefore he can't tolerate it. God doesn't overlook it. He doesn't excuse it, pretend it's not there. God destroys sin. God's abiding hatred of sin is most clearly demonstrated in the realized death of another son. Not Moses's, but his own. God demonstrated his abhorrence of sin and his love for the sinner as he sent Jesus to save us. Christ's death on a cross reveals God's antagonism towards sin. As if, if sin wasn't that big of a deal, then Jesus would never have suffered. If sin could have been excused, then don't you know that Christ would never have sweat drops of blood and cried out in anguish, Father, please take this cup from me. And then hung on a cross. If there had been another way, God would have made it. But such is the offense of sin, church, that God cannot tolerate it. And yet I fear there are many in our culture today who fail to fully appreciate the offense of sin. Having been raised in an age of grace and, and of love, we view intimacy with God to be an inalienable right rather than an indescribable gift. We view, we view sin like crumbs that collect on a table after a meal, something that we can merely sweep off with an arm or leave, depending. But it doesn't really affect the overall appearance of the room. But friends, this isn't the picture presented us in the Bible. This is not the attitude reflected by the God of the Bible. The God who has all authority cannot tolerate sin. He can't be in the presence of sin. And thus all who sin are separated from God and everything that He is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, light, life. Our lives are marked by the opposites of these attributes. We, we're born into a world marked by hate, sadness, conflict, hurry, anger, evil, brutality, pride, addiction, darkness, death. This is what we know, and apart from God's grace, this is all we'll know. And as the God who has all authority can't tolerate sin, we are deservedly damned. We have earned it, and there's nothing we can do to change it. But God can, and he did in Jesus. God destroyed sin's power on the cross, and therefore whoever believes in Jesus is set free from sin's shackles. You can know true love 
You can experience genuine joy and possess perfect peace in Jesus. This is the gospel, and it is a gospel of grace. I am continually, daily overwhelmed by God's amazing grace that he could love a sinner condemned unclean like me. And he does. The God who has all authority and who cannot tolerate sin loves me, and he loves you so much that he died to save us. And you can know this truth this morning. Why? Because God fulfills his promises. God fulfills his promises. And I know that we've made the point earlier that God makes promises, but let me just remind you that our God also fulfills his promises. In verse 27, there in your Bibles through to the end of chapter 4, we're given this account of Moses meeting Aaron and then the two of them arriving in Egypt, gathering the elders and performing all of the signs just as God had directed them to. And lo and behold, what happens? We read verse 31. And they believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Church, this is the very response that God had promised Moses back in chapter 3 and verse 18. And so the point that I want you to hold on to this morning as we close is that God fulfills his promises. He has all authority as the creator who was before all that is came to be. He is ultimate and he cannot tolerate sin. Thus, we all deserve his wrath. But God has promised that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but will have eternal life. This is God's grace, church. This is God's grace. But there is nothing amazing about this grace. There is nothing amazing about this grace as long as there is no appreciation of God's intolerance for sin. And I want to say that one last time. There is nothing amazing about this grace as long as there is no appreciation of God's intolerance for sin. Do you know this morning God's attitude towards sin? For if you do, then you can appreciate God's rich grace in the gospel. Would you pray with me as we close? Father God, you are a God of grace. And we use this term often flippantly within the church, failing to appreciate the depth that it conveys, the depth of your love, of the, the lengths to which you went to demonstrate your love for us. Father, for, for those who fail to appreciate the offense of sin, your grace is as nothing. For to our minds, we deserve what we receive from you because we merit it to some degree or another. But Father, when we realize that sin is that against which all your wrath is directed, holy wrath, a wrath that is a fully that fully communicates your love. Lord, and for men and women who struggle to distinguish the two or to see the two as the same, how can an act of wrath and antagonism be loving? Father, that is what we read about in the Scriptures. That is what we see demonstrated in this Gospel, how you came and provided us with grace out of love, justice, so that we might believe you to be who you are. Father, for a God that would take, overlook wrongdoing, 
could not be trusted, would lack consistency, and would therefore be unfaithful. And yet, God, you are faithful, and you never change. Father, I pray that you would give each of us a growing appreciation for your abhorrence of sin and thereby appreciate what makes your grace so amazing. And Father, if there is one, anyone this morning who has not come to realize these things, but having heard your gospel this morning, their hearts have changed. God, only a work that you can do as our hearts realize what you have done for us and that you are God and that we are sinful and that we need to be saved. Lord, if, if there are those who have felt that way this morning and as we stand in a moment and close our time together, God, would you bring, bring them to find me, talk to me, Lord, that we, might, that we might discuss at depth more of what this beautiful gospel means and how it provides us with hope unto eternity. Father, we thank you for your grace and that it is amazing. In Jesus' name, amen.